We draw our text from our upcoming Wednesday night study, so why don't you turn with me to Amos chapter 8 for our Bible study this evening. Have you guys heard of Sobibor? It's funny how um, there's things in history that I feel like need to be, people need to be reminded of, you know, and some of them are hard things, like this one, but Sobibor was one of the concentration camps of the Nazis uh, during World War II. Um, it didn't get as much press because it wasn't as huge as like Auschwitz or, um, you know, Dachau or some of these other uh, bigger concentration camps. But this one was, um, was a smaller one and it was um, in, in the scenic, beautiful area of the woods of, uh, near the Bug River, which separates Poland from Russia. Um, the natural beauty of the setting was uh, standing in stark contrast to the stench and horror of the camp. It was a death camp. Uh, where people would be hauled and they would put them in the showers and, and uh, gas the people. And uh, more than a quarter of a million people were killed there at that place. Um, uh, but, uh, I, you know, the thing about this, there was some, a story that caught my attention and it sort of reminded me and sort of springboards into our study here in Amos chapter eight. But on October 14th, 1943, uh, um, uh, you know, there was a group of the Jewish slaves, the people they didn't kill, had like skills, like seamstresses and shoemakers. They let those people live. And so there were like 700 people that were imprisoned here as slave work, slave labor. Everybody else that came to this camp was gassed and killed. Um, but I guess the, the guards here were particularly brutal. And there were some horrible, horrible things that they would do to these people who were alive in this camp. And eventually they said, we, you know, the, the Jews that were there just said, we don't care if we die we're gonna escape and do whatever we have to do. And so uh, through kind of an interesting, uh, well-planned escape of the 700 prisoners <clears throat> who took part of the escape, 300 of them made it to the forest and the edge outside of the barbed wire. Uh, but of those, less than 100 are known to have survived this camp uh, from that ex uh, escape. Uh, most were hunted down by the Germans and executed. But one of the prisoners um, that particularly stood out uh, in his story was a guy named Toivi Blatt. Toivi was 15 years old when his entire family was herded into Sobibor and uh, executed in the gas chamber. But Toivi, he was young enough uh, and is, uh, strong enough to where they decided to use him for slave labor. And he was one of these people that were part of the escape plan. But in the confusion of the escape, Toy V had attempted to crawl through a hole in the barbed wire fence, but was trampled by other prisoners trying to storm the fence and ran <coughs> over the people that were laying there. And, and a lot of those people were killed, trampled to death, uh, just through the mayhem. But the, the, the takeover was quite, a, I think there was a movie in like 1987, maybe of this whole escape thing. But, um, but anyway, um, you know, he was under this pile of people but probably that was the thing that saved him because everybody that ran through the barbed wire, then they went outside of the barbed wire and ran toward the woods. But the whole field between the woods and the barbed wire was just loaded with landmines. And most of the people died just trying to run across the field. But by the time Toy V gets out of this pile of people, by the time he runs across the field as one of the last ones, um, most of the landmines had been exploded. And so he made it to the woods along with two other young men about his same age. Um, and they started their long journey, not knowing where to go. And ne none of them were really outdoorsmen. They were all kind of city kids that were stuck in this concentration camp. So they, they started to you know, try to get away as fast as they could. And for four days solid, they just kept just running and going and running and going and just trying to avoid being caught. 
But after the four days, what they needed really was a guide um, because in the cold forest, as these boys just kept driving ahead, they finally see off in the distance a silhouette of a building and some lights and they go, oh, finally, maybe this is a place we can go and get some help or aid. And they got closer and closer, but then to their shock and to their horror, they saw the tall shape of a tower. And then they realized that they'd done a giant circle and made their way all the way back to Sobibor, the, the, the very place they were trying to escape. Um, after that, they, they ran the other direction and found an old farmhouse. And the old farmer there kind of took them in and tried to keep them safe for a few days, but the farmer decided to kill them um, and, um, and shot Tovi uh, in the jaw. And Tovi acted like he was dead. His two other guys were dead from the shooting. But um, when the farmer walked away, Tovey got up and ran with a jaw shot. And it's an amazing, um, he, up until, uh, he died uh, just a few years ago. He lived in Santa Barbara, of all places, um, after all this stuff. But it's interesting to hear this guy's story. But he, he mentioned about the, the most horrible feeling when they did that big circle and walked around the woods for four days, only to end up back at Sobibor. And, and um, you know, I, I, I liken that to really um, in today's world, you know, People are trying to escape um, all the horrible things that are going on in the world and, and trying to find meaning of life and only to find themselves going in circles and oftentimes bumping into the same problems they had years ago. And you know, it's, it's interesting because they pursue pleasure, prestige, possessions, but more often than not, they find themselves back right where they started. You know, it's this meaninglessness that denies hope and freedom. And, and, and really, the, the key is direction. Um, had these young boys had direction, they could have kept going the right direction to get away from their enemies. Um, and I really liken that to this world and this life. Um, you know, that horrible thing in history that happened to the Jews, um, you know, life and death is very real even for us. Um, it just may not be in a concentration camp. You know, it's interesting because Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25 says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. We're talking about direction, ways, the way you choose to go. And, and as it turns out, some of the things that we think are correct or good ways, as it turns out, they're the way that leads to death. Do you get a sense that there's people that think they have the right way, the right mindset, the right worldview, but you also get a sense that man, their way leads to death. And you just wanna come in and say, hey, time to wake up. You're going the wrong direction. Change your direction. And, and people look at a person like you and they say, well, what do you know about where we're supposed to go? And where's your authority on direction? And how do you know you're not going the way of destruction? Well, the key, the answer, as it turns out, it, it's, it's you gotta go the narrow way and you gotta follow what the Bible says, as it turns out. Let's take a look here, by the way, at our text. Would you, would you look at uh, this little couple verses here in Amos chapter eight, verse 11. We'll be 11 and 12. Those are our two texts for the night here, two verses. Amos eight eleven. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north even to the east. And they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. Wow. To me, 
Um, you know, once in a while you read a, a scripture in the Old Testament, you're like, okay, this applies to us today. And you're like, yeah, yeah. But sometimes it's like, wow, this was written for us just for today. This is one of those verses. Could this be, um, you know, the, the prophecy Amos was giving was more for us than even for the Jews of that time? Because what we're seeing here is the fulfillment of this prophecy largely in our culture. Behold, the days come, that's future. The Lord says, there's gonna come a day when there's gonna be a famine, not of food or bread or you know, thirst for water, but for the hearing of the words of the Lord. And what's the result of the lack of hearing? Wandering. People will wander from sea to sea and from north even to the east. And man, people are gonna wander. Now this wandering of going different directions, I love how simple the Lord makes it. In fact, Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter seven. Jesus said in Matthew seven thirteen, he said, enter ye in the straight gate, um, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there be which go in thereat because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. You know, Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father, which is in heaven, but by me. And some people don't like that, that's narrow. Narrow-minded, because you're just saying Jesus is the way. And I always like to respond to that, yes, it is narrow, but it's the right way. If you wanna go the right way, go through the narrow gate. Um, but people don't like narrow, and many people are stubborn, and they say, I wanna go the way I wanna go. I'll do things my way, as old Frank Sinatra sang. And when you do things your way, you can, the, the way that seems right to a man is the way that leads to death. That's what we read in Proverbs. And so this really sad scripture that we have here in Amos, the Lord says there's gonna be a famine, there's coming a time where people wanna hear the Lord of the Lord, but the Lord says, I will send this famine where they will not be able to, to hear and, and not be able to receive the, the way, the truth. And then Jesus said, broad is the way. I wonder what percentage, have you ever thought about percentages? What percentages of all humanity will go to the way of destruction versus the percentage of people that will make that narrow passageway through Jesus Christ to be saved? I have a theory and it might be a little bit sad, but I'm just gonna throw it out to you. I believe, I wonder if it's 25%. 25%? Well, did you see what Jesus said? Because straight or narrow is the way which leads unto life. And Jesus said, few there be that find it. What does few mean? Man, I'll tell you, one of the things we have to do is, is you say, why, why would you say 25%, Brett? Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I've got a theory. And, and why don't you think about that? I'm gonna let you think about that for a second. 25%. Um, so here's what we need to consider. And I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, by the way. So few there be that find it, broad to destruction, narrow to the leads to life. So now, now back to Amos, we learned, you know, Amos is this fig picking, sheep raising hick from Tekoa. And he's going to the fancy hoity-toity area where all the wealthy people are. And he's got a word of prophecy for the people. But actually, um, are they gonna listen to him? Well, this is part of that message he's given. Can you imagine, you know, Amos showing up saying there's gonna come a time where there's gonna be a famine where people will not hear the word of God. And we know that Israel was prof you know, prospering materialistically at this time of Amos's prophecy, but they were starving spiritually. 
because they were going the wrong way spiritually. They were seeking the wrong things to fulfill them or satisfy them spiritually. So they were, there was a famine already in Amos's time and Amos is just bringing clarity saying there's a problem and it's this famine that's gonna come. The famine, not of food or bread or water, but because of the hearing of the word of God, there'll be a, a hunger. And really I wanna break this down. Three thoughts, three things, you can jot them down. Number one, the first thing to consider is the source of the famine. What's the cause or the source of this famine? And this might be a little bit confusing to you if you haven't really done some work in the Bible. Where do we read the source of the famine comes from? It says, behold, verse 11, the days come, saith Lord, that I will send a famine in the land. This comes from the Lord. Now that raises an interesting question. Why would God send a famine in the land to the people he loves, the Jews, why would he send a famine to them where there's the, they lose their way and they start wandering? And even if they wanna hear the word of the Lord, they can't. That's what it says in verse 12. You know, they'll wander from sea to sea, from north even to the east. By the way, that, that image of the, going from the north to the east, you know, normally a person will go from the north to the south. Maybe you go from point A to point B. But what's, what, what is it when a person's going from north to east? They're wandering, they don't know where they're going. They're going in circles. And that's the problem. The Lord says, I'm gonna send a famine and there are people are gonna wander from, you know, from north to the east and from sea to sea. And, and then it says, and they shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord. Now with that, you think, well, then the Lord will give them if they're seeking, right? They will seek the word of the Lord and they shall not find it. Well, what right does God to have it where these people that wanna seek the Lord and he says, I'm not gonna let you find me. How could God do that? If God is love, people like to ask questions like that. If God is love, then why would he not let people seek that are seeking fine? Well, actually there's a lot of Bible that sort of tells us why something like that could happen or even how uh, something like that happens. And actually there's a little journey I need to take you on to sort of show you how that shakes out. And it's, this is important. This is important doctrine in the Bible about God and what he does, especially with the rebellious. And the little journey starts in Genesis chapter six, verse three. Remember the Lord is about to flood the earth because of the rebellion of man. And there the Lord makes this statement in Genesis six, three. He says, uh, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. What an interesting thing for God to say, my spirit will not always strive with man. The Holy Spirit, not always strive with man. What does that mean? Well, as it turns out, when you read the rest of your Bible, the Holy Spirit is with people. Even before you were saved, the three prepositions you should know about the Holy Spirit, there's three that are kind of important. The Holy Spirit is with you, he can be in you, and he can come upon you. The with is before you're even saved, the Holy Spirit was with you. Some of you remember these days in your BC days, before you were a Christian and you didn't believe, and, and the Holy Spirit was tapping you on the shoulder. Who was it? Was it your grandma? You need to accept Jesus. And you're like, oh, grandma, tap, tap, tap. But you think maybe grandma's right. Probably not. Tap, tap, tap. The Holy Spirit was with you and you knew in your heart there was something about it and the Holy Spirit stuck with you. And eventually, whether it was grandma or some sermon you heard, or maybe you just started reading the Bible, whatever it was, the Holy Spirit is with you, tapping you on the shoulder. Then once you become a Christian and you accept Christ, then Jesus said the Holy Spirit will then be in you. You can read John 14, John chapter 16, and it talks about that. 
But then remember the disciples, they, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive you the Holy Ghost there in the upper room. And then Jesus said, now go to Jerusalem and wait for the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. That's that third one. Um, that's where the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon a person. The coming upon is a key. Uh, that's the power. Remember Samson, whenever he did his feats of strength, it says, and the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson and then he wiped out a Philistine army or what have you. So all that to say, um, this first relationship, the Holy Spirit is with you. That's good news, especially if you're not a Christian. Even right now, I wonder if the Holy Spirit's tapping you on the shoulder saying, you need to accept Christ and be saved. That's the good news. The bad news about this is, According to Genesis 6.3, my spirit will not always strive with man. The men of Noah's day got past the point of no return. So God says, I'm done. And that's when he floods the earth, except for Noah and his family and everybody drowns and, and the world is judged by the Lord because the spirit was done striving with man at that point. There is a point where you can sort of go past the point of no return. That's something we see in the Bible where the spirit will not always strive. In other words, if you're stubborn long enough, the, the, the spirit will eventually say, I'm out. Um, we see this also, by the way, um, as a progression in John chapter 12, verse 37. Jesus was doing all these miracles in Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee, raising the dead, healing the sick. And it says in verse 37 of John 12, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet, they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. Notice there's a three-way progression here. First, there's the would not, then there's the could not, and then there's a should not. Let me show you this. They would not believe in verse 37. It says there, um, even though he did all these miracles, they believed not on him. That's the would not. They chose, we're not gonna believe. Even though we see the miracles, we will not believe. So you got the would not. Then in verse 39, it says, and because of that, therefore, and whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask why it's therefore. It's because they would not believe, therefore they could not believe. That's the progression. It's like the Lord said, okay, you will not believe. Okay, I'm gonna make it so you actually cannot. It's impossible for you to believe. And then it says, he hath blinded their eyes. That's the Lord who does that. And harden their heart that they, third one, should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. What a tragic project, you know, projection of where you're headed or, or, you know, uh, God forbid you're at that trajectory where you're refusing to believe. And the Lord says, okay, I'm going to, I'm not going to have my spirit always strive with you. So you're going to get to a place where not only you're choosing not to believe, I'm going to make it so you cannot. And then that you should not, that's the progression that we see. Would not, could not, should not. And then we see this ugliness of the stubbornness of man and how God gives people over and the spirit is no longer striving. Maybe one of the best examples of that is the book of Romans chapter one. In Romans chapter one, God calls out the rebellious people who are atheists saying, we choose not to believe in God and their hearts are hardened. And then he kind of talks about the homosexual. You know, that's one of the clearest places in the Bible where the Lord calls homosexuality an abomination, a sin. 
And, and then check this out. Let's look at this progression here in Romans 1.24. Wherefore God gave, and if you read the whole chapter, people that wanna sin, therefore God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. He goes on in verse 26, same chapter. For this cause, God gave them up unto the vile affections <coughs> for even their women did change the natural use into that which was against nature. And then uh, verse 28, same chapter. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now then that, that raises a question. You say, okay, Brett, so people get so stubborn that God's spirit will not always strive with those people to change them, to get on the right trajectory. Um, but why, will God, why does God bail on people? Um, what right does he have to bail out and say, I'm gonna withdraw my spirit. I'm gonna give them over to their own lusts and their own destruction. Why would God ever do that? Well, it's interesting because if you read the rest of the Bible, why wouldn't God just stick with it and keep on pushing? Well, as it turns out, do you understand, if God wanted to, let's just kind of pretend for a second, God could have created you and me without a free will at all. He could have just made robots. Yes, Lord, we'll do whatever you say. Beep, you know, we could just be robots. But the Lord says, nope, I'm giving humanity free will. But if a person wants to use their free will long enough and stubborn enough, the Lord says, I'm gonna give you over to what you want. Be careful with for what you want. You might just get what you asked for. And there's a point where God will, and not, it's, I don't believe it's a mean-spirited, well, I'm just gonna give you what you're asking, what you want. I'm gonna let you go to destruction. I think it's a broken-hearted Lord who gives you the choice whether you're gonna be stubborn or repentant. And there's a point where God stops pushing. Remember the Holy Spirit is with you. He's, he's lovingly trying to woo you to himself with a loving kindness in his heart. And the Lord's saying, oh, I would that none should perish, but everyone come to repentance and everlasting life. Like this is the heart of the Lord. He wants everybody to be saved. But there's a point where God says, I'm not gonna force you. I'm not gonna push you past that point of no return. Uh, you're gonna, th there's a point where I'm gonna withdraw. It'd be a little bit like this. Remember, you and I, we're called the bride of Christ. You and I, we're, we're, we're the people that get to be invited by Jesus to be his bride. But would it be a nice wedding invitation? Here's a freebie for some of you young single guys. If you're asking your girl to marry you and you get on one knee and you pull out of your pocket, pocket a 357 Magnum, and you say, marry me or else. Is that romantic? Ladies, would you just kind of go, oh, I just love him. No, um, that's not a good plan. Just, just a freebie. I mean, I give this stuff for free. And you know, God could have done that. He could have forced us to be his followers, but that's not real love. So there's a point where God says, I'm gonna be the perfect gentleman and I'm gonna back off. I'm not gonna force you to be my followers. I'm not gonna force you to be the bride of Christ and it's gonna be your choice. So God, why doesn't he just keep pushing? Or why does the Holy Spirit keep striving? Because there's a point where he's gonna let you do whatever you wanna do. Um, it's interesting because I wonder if you and I have to be a little bit more like the Lord on this. Have you ever had somebody you wanted desperately to accept Christ? So much so that you might be a little bit offensive just in how pushy you are? I've probably pushed some people too hard, too far. And, and the, I, I try to remember that, you know, there you are, your Aunt Matilda, she's an amazing girl and you love her. 
and you tell her about Jesus, but she just says, no, I'm an atheist. And then you start beating her over the head with your King James Bible. Come on, Emma, tell that you need to believe in Jesus. You're going to hell, fly or fry, turn or burn. And, and you start like, <clears throat> you're like, start being weird and offensive. And, and I've seen Christians take it too far. Did you know, if we're gonna be like the Lord, I wonder if there's a point where you should stop striving with Aunt Matilda. Um, rather than pressing, maybe you should start praying um, and pray for her salvation. Because there's been times where I've had people say, Brett, I got it. You're a Christian, you want me to be a Christian, but the answer is no, stop talking to me about it. And then there's a point where I have to say, Lord, is this the time where you're not, you don't want me to strive, even as, as you won't always strive with this person. <clears throat> but you know, the, here's the problem. The Lord knows what that point is, the point of no return. You and I don't. But sometimes the Lord will give you a sense it's time to stop pushing and it's time to just start praying and leaving the rest of it up to the Lord to be sensitive when to stop pushing and start praying. Well, anyway, this is the, the thing that's going on here when the Lord says, you know, I'm, I'm gonna send a I'm, I'm sending a famine in the land where they're not gonna hear the word. And even though they try to seek me, they will not find me. Um, this is the point of no return. This is where God gives people over to their own um, lusts and desires. Do you remember early, a couple Wednesday nights ago, we saw in Amos chapter two, verse 12, where they were pouring the alcohol down the Nazarites' throats. It says, you gave Nazarites wine to drink, but also check this out. And you commanded the prophets saying, prophesy not. We don't wanna hear it from you anymore, prophets. Shut your mouths, we're done. And this is a sure sign of a, a person kind of entering into that point of no return. Heartbreaking as it is, tragic as it is, um, oftentimes that's the way it is. Um, so that's the first thing we think of. The, you know, um, what was the source of this famine? It was actually God himself. And it's not because he was mad or just judging, it's because he knows what those people were doing and they reached that point of no return. And he's the perfect gentleman. He doesn't force himself on people. These people would get to that place. And sadly, there's a lot of people today who are saying, yeah, you Christians, forget it. I don't wanna hear about it anymore. Um, what a heartbreaking place when a person, I hope none of you or nobody online watching have been pushing against the Lord and, and, and that, that invitation for you to be saved, forgiven, headed for heaven. And for whatever reason, you're stubbornly standing your ground. God forbid, you don't wanna get to that point of no return where God says, okay, I'm gonna give you your wish. Um, that's, that's part of this text that we're studying tonight. So um, first thing to consider, the source of the famine was the Lord himself. Number two, as we consider the unique type of famine. Um, it, it says here in our text, it was a famine uh, in the land, not a famine of bread or thirst or water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. You say, well, Brett, that's obvious. We've already got that. But I, I think a little more consideration, not just a famine uh, of hearing, but um, it, it was not a famine of teaching or preaching necessarily. Um, that's important to know. Because even in their time, even in our time, there's a lot of preaching and teaching that's going on. And is there a famine of the word of God? No, many of you have 20 Bibles in your house. The Bible is so accessible now and Bible teaching is everywhere. If you go on YouTube and look up Amos chapter you know, eight, verses 11 and 12, you'll find 50 teachings on YouTube from 50 different pastors and churches and, and people that aren't even pastors, guys in their basement, just uh, sharing about you know, Amos chapter eight. Some of that stuff's really great. Uh, the basement guys are sometimes better. 
um, I found, as it turns out. But there's a lot of good preaching. Now, here's the problem. There's also a lot of bad preaching on there. That was the case in Amos's time. See, the preaching in that day, there were no preachers, there were prophets. They did a similar thing. The preacher, teacher of the Bible in our church age, that's the guys teaching the Bible because we have all the word of the Lord right here in the Bible. So we teach the Bible. The prophets in the Old Testament, they didn't have this Bible as we have it. So they would speak the word of the Lord by the Holy Spirit to the people. But remember, the people, they, they, would, they would tell the true prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and some of these guys we've been studying, take a hike. We don't wanna hear it from you guys, you doom and gloom prophets. Do you remember how they, the, during the time of like Jeremiah, remember all the people that, they, they loved the prophets that tell them what they wanted to hear. And there were prophets running around saying, hey, you're gonna be victorious. And the Babylonians, don't worry about them. They're awesome. You guys are awesome. Remember the, the, the prophet, so-called, that got the horns? And he's running around like with bull horns saying, <laughs> and he's all theatrical and he's acting like a bull. <laughs> and, he's, and he's saying, even as this bull could pound everything, so you will de defeat the Babylonians. And I was like, oh, I love that guy. He was a total loser. He was a drama you know, specialist and people were going, oh, he's the one we want to listen to. But he was a false prophet. Do you remember King Jehoiakim? Jehoiakim was there and Jeremiah wrote the word of the Lord down for him, God's word on paper. And then when the king got the, the letter, the paper that was actually the word of God, what happened? Do you remember what Jehoiakim did? Well, let me remind you, Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 22 um, that now it says the king Jehoiakim sat in the winter house in the ninth month and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass when Jehudi, who? Remember Jehudi? Jehudi was a, a scribe who was a reader of the scriptures. So he brings in Jehudi to read the scriptures. So Jehudi had read the three or four leaves when he, Jehoiakim, cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until the roll, the scroll, was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Man, Jehoiakim gets the word from Jeremiah, which is the word of the Lord. Jehudi starts reading it, and Jehoiakim rips it out of the guy's hand, starts cutting it up and throwing it in the fire. That's what people do today. I hope you know this, I hope you understand this. There's a, there's a similar behavior where people will hear the word of God. And you know what, it's not just the atheist or the secularist. Sadly, we're seeing this happening in the church and in the colleges and universities that are so-called Christian colleges, some of them, where they're taking scripture and they're ripping out pages and putting a knife to it. They're taking out certain things that they think are important uh, because they, they don't really agree with the Bible. We see this all the time. Um, it's sad how they cut parts of scripture out. Today, you know, people are doing that to the word of God big issues, stuff we talk about here because this is what's happening today. LGBTQ issues, man. Make sure to rip that out. Take out Romans chapter one, burn it in the fire. We don't like that part of scripture. So what are they doing? They're not hearing the word of God. They're rejecting the word of God. What a sad and tragic situation when, when, when the Lord, we see this famine in line where people aren't willing to hear the word of God. Um, it's not just LGBTQ issues. It's, it's, um, it's even stuff like women's role at the church. Um, I know that this is you know, less popular. There's kind of two views out there and they call it the egalitarian view and the complementarian view. Which one do we believe at Athe? Well, um, and I know this sounds high and mighty or whatever you wanna accuse us of, but the Bible's clear. The roles of men and women in the church are assigned by God. 
Man, when you read first, you know, first Timothy chapter two, it says that men are supposed to lead in the church and we're supposed to be the ones to teach the congregation. Um, that's not to say women are less than men or not as good as men or not as smart as men. There's, there's people that totally try to mess all that stuff up, but God just handed out the, he divvied out the instructions and, and, and some of us just say, well, that's what the Bible says. Well, Brett, you don't understand. As the two women professors from George Fox College came and yelled at me after a Wednesday night Bible study. This was quite a few years ago now, but it left a pretty big impression on my heart. This church is too full of testosterone, they said. Where are the women? I'm like, well, look around. We've got amazing women in this congregation and talented and men. And I tried to show, you know, man, we've got a beautiful women's ministry and, and some of the women lead the way in, in some of the volunteering and taking care of people and loving and, you know, being like Jesus to the, like, and they're like, yeah, but where's the pastors and elders that are women? And I said, well, this is where we're gonna disagree. Because first Tim, Timothy chapter two makes it clear. And, and they said, well, that's not for today. That, that's a cultural thing of the time. And I said, well, here's the problem with your theory there. The example Paul gives about why women aren't supposed to teach or usurp authority over men in the church, the example that Paul gives goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, long before that century, long before the cultural norms of that day, and said the reason it happened all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Eve was deceived by the serpent and Adam was not. Now, Adam still gets nailed with the first original sin, but as it turns out, the reasoning the Lord says, I want men to lead the church is because all the way back in the Garden of Eden, that goes outside of time and culture and all that stuff. And meanwhile, these, these profs at these colleges are trying to teach, uh, you know, and now churches are all throwing out the, the Bible and saying, we don't like First Timothy chapter two, it's not for today. And they're throwing it in the fire. Now, some of you might be saying, well, Brett, we don't like that about Ethy Creek. Well, I can recommend a lot of churches. I have lots of women pastors and, um, and you can go to those churches if you want to. But, but as for us here at Ethy Creek, you know what? We're just gonna stick with the scripture, even if it hurts. Even if we, we don't agree with it. Like, like, do you understand? When, when I read the Bible, there's a lot of things I'd go, Lord, I'd do that a lot different. I really would. But a long time ago, I don't know how the Lord blessed me with this, but I just decided just to approach the Bible as it is the word of God. And I might have harebrained ideas that might seem smarter. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof leads to what? Death. Well, but it seems right to me that women should be able to teach and usurp authority as a pastor in a church. Well, that might seem right to you, but that's, that's one of those things that people rip out of their Bibles. And I could go on and on. Women's role in the church, LGBTQ issues, um, sex outside of marriage. I mean, young people today are like, yeah, whatever. You gotta sleep with someone before you get married. You gotta test, make sure the plumbing all works. Listen, <laughs> the plumbing works. I'm not trying to be vile here, but I'm just gonna be honest. You wanna know how to make the plumbing not work? Have sex outside of marriage with a bunch of people, then marry someone, and then you'll be dysfunctional sexually in marriage. Like God knows what he's doing when he talks about abstinence and monogamy and it's one man, one woman, marriage, anything outside of that, First Corinthians chapter seven is called fornication, which is sexual immorality. People don't like that today. People are like, oh, Brett, you're a dinosaur, antiquated to, to believe those old biblical you know, norms. No, um, you either read the Bible and let it judge you or you read the Bible and you be the judge of the Bible. And I'll just tell you, 
That's the way that leads to death. When you just say, oh, well, let's read the Bible and we'll see, we'll take in the things we like, but we'll spit out the things we don't like. That's the, what the Lord's saying. There's gonna be a famine in the land where people are gonna read the word, the preaching of the word, the prophesying of the word in the Old Testament time, but we're, not gonna, we're just not gonna hear it. We don't wanna hear it. Um, man, that's so sad. That's the condition of the world today. If Hebrews chapter two, verse one, um, the author of Hebrews says, therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, that, that is of the word, contextually when you read this, lest at any time we should let them slip. When we read the Bible, we should give earnest heed, listen up and tune in to what the Bible says and listen, lest at any time we should let them slip. The word slip there, if you look it up in the Greek text, the word is better translated from slip to leak, as if you're pouring into a leaky vessel. Um, do you ever feel like you have a leaky vessel? Like when the word gets poured in, you're like, oh, okay, the word. And, and then, but as you're walking out of the service, you, you know, you're like, wait, what was that about again? What was scripture? It's like we have leaky vessels. Um, have you ever gotten like a, one of those paper cups for coffee or whatever, and you go to the coffee machine, you get the coffee, and then you're walking around and it's dripping everywhere. And one of those paper cups, little not functional, it has a hole in the bottom of it. Well, that's what a lot of Christians are. They're leaky vessels. And you wonder about the mess. Where'd this mess come from? You have a leaky vessel. That's why I hear the author here says, oh, give more earnest heed. Don't let the word leak out of your heart and your mind. Um, by the way, um, let me ask you, I told you that maybe I have a theory that, you know, when Jesus said, few there be that find it, the way is broad to destruction and narrow. And I, I threw out the idea, and I wouldn't die on this battlefield, by the way, but um, I threw out the idea of 25%, which is kind of a scary number, but 25%. Does anybody want to take a stab why that's my theory? Yes, the parable of the sower of the seed. If you're a mathematician and you kind of do the math of what Jesus was saying about the way the word enters into the heart of someone, one in four of those seeds seem to fall on good soil. What do I mean, Brett? Well, this is, this is the point. In Matthew, pardon me, uh, in Mark's gospel, chapter four, verses one through 20, Jesus talked about this parable of the sower. And just quick review of this. The sower, you might say, is Jesus himself. Or you might even say, whoever's giving out the word of God, the seed is the word of God that's supposed to bring forth good fruit in a person's life. So the sower, the Lord, or even someone who would like yourself who's sharing the word to someone, did you know that those seeds are gonna fall in different kinds of soil? The soil represents the heart of the person, the heart of man. And the four soil conditions Jesus talked about, he said, some seed will fall by the wayside, not on the field that's plowed and ready for seed, but it's on the wayside where the people trample it down and we're walking on it and it's hardened soil. Um, and the birds of the air, which are a type of Satan, come and fly and take the seed and fly away with it. So the seed never even has a chance to get into the heart because of the wayside. So it's the first example was the wayside, and I'm gonna call that the hard heart. And some of you, sad to say, people maybe watching online, have had in your life a hard heart. The seed of the word of God just bounces off your heart and never takes root. And Satan then takes the seed and flies away with it. No fruit. The second condition of the heart is what I would call the shallow heart because the Lord says the second ground is like stony ground. There's rocks in it and there's little soil. So when the seed goes in, oh, it, it does root in the little bit of soil that's there, but because it's stony ground, the roots don't go deep. They're just really shallow. And when the sun comes up, that seed grows and then it's scorched and it dies. 
Some people have a condition of the heart like stony ground. Oh, they hear the word and go, oh, it's a good sermon. It, it takes a little root, but as soon as trouble comes, the sun comes up, it just burns it all up and you forget about it. No fruit. The third soil condition is the thorny ground where there's seeds of thorns, bull thistles. That was one of my jobs when I was a kid. We had a big field and there was one summer, for some reason we had this big infestation of bull thistles. And I had to go there and, you know, with a shovel and take them out by the roots and I'd fill a wheelbarrow up full of bull thistles. What a bummer. The reason we did that is because we'd try to grow grass or even alfalfa in our field and um, it just didn't work with bull thistles. But that's the idea. Jesus said, you'd throw the seed down, but the bull thistles would grow up and choke out the good seed. And then Jesus said, the thorns are the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of the heart. And that's what happens if your seed of the word falls on the soil of your heart, but you're more concerned about your wealth and about the things you really want or you're worried about stuff, that, that those thorns of those cares of this world start to choke out the word of God and you have no fruit. I'm gonna call that the distracted heart. So you got the, the hard heart, the shallow heart, the distracted heart, but then the fourth condition of the soil, Jesus said, here it is, that is good soil. It's ready to roll. And when the seed of the word of God hits the soil, I'm gonna call that a ready heart. You got the hard heart, the shallow heart, the distracted heart, but you've got the ready heart. The heart's ready to receive the word and the seed hits the soil and it takes root and it grows. And Jesus said, and that, that seed brings forth much fruit, good fruit. Um, so there it is, one in four. One in four of the seeds. And I have to say, the reason my theory on this is getting stronger and stronger, I've been teaching the word for a lot of years. Senior pastor for 25 years, youth pastor for 13 years. And I've seen how this actually does sadly shake out. And even when Jesus was sowing the seed, there were people that just walked away and said, yeah, whatever. Like that's Jesus. Consider the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, um, which one of the conditions of soil was the rich young ruler's problem. I'm gonna say it was the thorny soil, why? Because the rich young ruler came to, hey, what do I need to do? I wanna follow you. And I'm, you know, um, I've kept all the laws and commandments. What do I need to do? And Jesus knew his problem. He said, here's what you need to do. Sell all your wealth, all your riches, and then follow me. And the guy said, I can't do that. And he turned around and started weeping and walking away. And, and interesting, did you know Jesus didn't chase him down? Hey, wait, Mr. Rich Young Ruler, I'm Jesus, listen to me. He didn't do that. Could it be that Jesus knew this man's soil of his heart is not gonna receive the word of, of, of truth because he was the thorny soil, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches is what stuck the rich young ruler with fruitlessness. So Brett, why are you talking about all this stuff? Well, that, that's just the thing. I mean, the source of the famine was the Lord, but the unique type of famine was this idea of just not being able to receive and actually hear the word of God and, oh, God forbid that ever happens to you or us or me or our churches. Um, brings us to the final part of our study and that is consider the results of the famine. So we have the source of the famine, the Lord himself. The unique type of famine, it was a famine of hearing the word, not preaching, teaching, or even the scriptures themselves, but a famine of people willing to hear and receive the word. But consider the results of the famine. And the word is really there in verse 12, the word I would say in a single word is wandering. When you refuse to receive the word of God, remember thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The scriptures are like a compass. 
The word gives us clear direction in this life, but the person who refuses to hear the word, it says here, they shall wander from sea to sea, from north even to the east. They shall run to and fro and to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. What does that look like? I mean, that's such a weird thing. They're trying to seek the word of the Lord, but they're not gonna be able to find it. Is that happening today? Well, actually the answer is yes. There's people who think they're trying to seek the word of the Lord, but they don't realize that their hearts aren't receiving the word. They're not hearing the word. They think, they think they're seeking, but they're really not. They're pushing their own agenda. Uh, they think they're seeking the Lord, but the Lord says, you will not find me with that attitude and that hard heartedness. Um, how is it? I think that what we see in this, this text really starts to answer the questions that make me you know, scratch my head and say, what in the world's going on? How is it that the church of Jesus Christ today has been wandering into worldviews that are so opposite to what the Bible teaches? Have you guys noticed that? Like how can the church get sucked into secular worldviews and make that their Sunday morning sermon rather than the word of God? Um, especially with important topics, like some of the most important topics of the day, the church is off course and they're wandering from north to east or they're going to and fro on the topic, important topics like racism. Racism is an important topic of the day, but I'm always marveling at how churches are off course on this one, and they have for the past two years. Since the George Floyd thing, I'm shocked at what I've seen come out of churches and pulpits and sermons. Brett, you're just white fragility. You're just, do you know the book, you know, some of the churches, even local churches here, put recommended reading on the front of their website, you know, read White Fragility, and I've read the book, because everybody was talking about it and our culture's kind of gone crazy about it. But white fragility, if you don't know what it is, it means that basically, if you read it, it basically says every person that's white is a racist, whether they know it or not. And when you try to approach them about their in, in, you know, in, embedded racism, when you approach them, they're fragile to where they get angry or walk away or will not receive or talk to anyone about racism because they're fragile. And here's where it really goes off the rails when you read the book. There's no wiggle room at all for forgiveness, redemption, um, reconciliation. It's basically just say you as white people or whoever. Now I, I have some black friends that are bright, like Brett, I'm, we're offended by white fragility because it actually, if you read the book, it actually sort of puts down the black community. Like if you really read it, it's, it's, I know a lot of those um, people are saying, yeah, forget this, this is not good. And a lot of us are kind of like feeling horrible about ourselves. We're teaching you know, our kids to feel guilty because they were born white. And, and is that really helping? Are we really solving the racism problem with this kind of discussion? Um, I, I'm sad because if you embrace white fragility, there's no room for newness of life. Old things passed away, all things are new. Redemption, forgiveness, love and kindness. None, none of that with when you talk about white fragility. And not only that, you know, churches got off on BLM. I was shocked on Blackout Tuesday, you know, a year and a half ago, whenever that was, when pastors were post, you know, posting Black Lives Matter. I was like, these guys didn't, either they didn't do their homework or they're like anti-Bible. Um, and I, I remember when I first brought this up in a prophecy update a year and a half, two years ago, people were shocked. Brett said Black Lives Matter is evil and people freaked out then. But then I said, go look at their website, read their beliefs. 
And for about a week after I said it, you can still go to their website and read, we would like to disrupt the nuclear Western family, the mother, the father, the kids. We, we don't like that plan. Um, we wanna raise kids more in a village. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not into that. I, I'm, I'm pro mom, dad, and family. I, I'm not into that. Plus they boasted of their Marxist uh, views and I'm not into Marx. Mar- you know, have you ever read Karl Marx? Um, he was the one who called religion the opiate of the masses, anti-God, anti-Jesus, anti-religion. And this is what Black Lives Matter was for. So when I said all this, people were like, ah, you come on, ah, Brett doesn't think Black Lives Matter. What a, what a funny false dilemma if you say, I'm not into Black Lives Matter, the organization, but then we all have to say, but, 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 but we know Black Lives Matter. Of course, of course. It's such a, it's such a funny thing to watch the church panic and start jumping on board with the world's secular godless views. If you wanna know how racism can be helped, it's not Black Lives Matter, it's the Bible. God loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. Man, the Lord has a love and it's not about equity and stuff. Jesus never taught that. It's about unity, that we're to love one another, whoever the other person is. We're to love our enemies and do good to people that persecute us. Like the Bible just totally is opposite of everything Black Lives Matter really stands for, for the truth. And yet, how did the church wander off on that tangent so painfully? There's still churches. It's amazing, you know, the world is, you know, the people who invented wokeism, they're starting to say, we don't like that word wokeism anymore. Did you guys hear this? They're almost trying to turn it around like all these you know, people that are, you know, were against woke, they're using the word wokeism. Well, we got the word from you. Um, but here's the thing that is sad to me. I mean, this is almost laughable, but it's sad. So, so when I was talking about wokeism and how that's a problem, um, it's interesting because the people who are into the wokeism, they're all saying, yeah, we're not into wokeism anymore. But you know who's still into wokeism? Is some of the churches. Even when the woke people are saying, don't be into wokeism, the church is like, let's be woke. And I would say, wake up um, and follow the Bible. How is it that church today can so easily forget the great commission? You know, it's amazing to me how churches get, we're all about social gospel and social justice. You know, can I just say social justice? The word justice doesn't need an adjective. Do you know that? The word justice is just justice. You don't need that social justice. We do want and pray for justice, but that's not gonna come through all these social justice movements. It's amazing how the church has become all about this movement or all about that movement, and uh, it's not that. I, 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 I'm probably, I know people get mad at me about stuff like this, but I remember church, they always have these things that come and go. Um, like for example, uh, I remember the last decade, it seemed like young people, it's all about community. And I'd hear that and go, I understand what they're saying, and community is nice, but it's not all about community. Where did you get that? Find me, show me the scriptures where it's all about community because it's not. And people say that stuff. You know what it's all about? It's all about Jesus. Amen. It's so funny how there's so many self-centered things we think it's all about. It's all about me. And that's, that's, we see churches doing this, my happiness, my emotional feelings, my power of God move flowing through my veins. Um, no, <clears throat> it's not about you. And it's not about community. Oh, community's nice. And, and I can show you where the Bible talks about community and having friendship and koinonia and fellowship. Of course, it's not all about that. 
It's all about Jesus. If the church could just remember to keep the main thing, the main thing, they'll be doing good. And the main thing is Jesus, it's not community. It's not even missionary work or healing. It's not, you know, us bark dusting the public schools to show that we're Christians, that we love our community. Um, it's not about that stuff. And, and I'm saying this because listen, Athey Creek, we've bark dusted schools. We've done that. We've, we've helped in our neighborhoods and we've done a bunch of, but it's not all about that. And it's amazing. How is it that the church can get so off on tangents and stuff? I think it has to do with this issue that we're talking about. There's a famine in the land of people being willing to hear the word. We're hearing the culture. We're hearing Black Lives Matter and, and the George, George Floyd situation. So the church is reacting rather than responding with the truth of the word of God. Man, God help us with this. Um, you know, I love, I love the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's, that's what changes all this stuff. You know, it changes, the gospel changes people's hearts through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. You can write your book about racism, but you know, there needs to be a regeneration of a sinful, cruddy heart if we wanna get rid of racism. There needs to be a, a repentance of our sin and a following of Jesus Christ, and then society will change through, through being, people being saved. So, so, so this warning by the prophet Amos is powerful. And, and man, I have to say, it's more true today than maybe ever in history. We need to hear this word. You know, people are wandering around individually. The church is wandering around corporately. And all we gotta do to get back on course, the compass is the word of God. How do we keep from losing our way in this world of confusion? The word of God is the key. Hearing and doing the word of God. Amen. Amen. Oh Lord, I pray uh, that we wouldn't be so easily distracted by all the noise. Your word is true, Lord, and it's been proven for centuries. We see, Lord, how humanity, and ourselves included, Lord, we confess our propensity to listen to what the world is saying and try to be relevant today and trying to come up with solutions. But when we do that apart from your word, Lord, it just gets to be messy. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to do what your word says. And Lord, we do lift up those who might be watching here or even here in the room, Lord, that have yet to accept you and believe. Maybe your Holy Spirit is still striving, tapping them on their shoulder that they know that, that they're being led or, or prompted to believe. But we also know that, that temptation in our flesh, our human sin nature to resist the temptation to believe. So I pray that you would just pull that resistance out of their hearts, Lord, and that they would understand their need to be forgiven for their sins, saved by the work of the cross, by believing and accepting what you did on the cross for their sins. Lord, may they just receive that, soften their hearts, we pray. Lord, we ask that you'd give us eyes that are open, Lord, because these days are dark. May our light shine before all men. Give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.